All right. So typically when, you know, preachers get up on stage and begin a sermon, they usually start off with a joke or something. I don't have one. I don't have one. I'm sorry. I couldn't come up with anything. I just kept coming up with dad jokes in my head. I feel like once you become, right? Like once you become a dad, it just, it just kind of happens and it's sad. It's a sad day when you become a dad and then all that comes out are dad jokes. Anyway, um, it's good to see everybody. It's good to see everybody. It really is, truly. It's, it's really good to see everybody. Um, so we're in the middle of a series entitled Exemplary, which was inspired by 1 Timothy 4.12, which says, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Be an example in these things. Be exemplary. And we've been discussing what it looks like to be exemplary uh, in these five items. Last week, we finished uh, looking at exemplary love. And this week, we'll begin exemplary faith. Just a little note. Next week, we're going to take a break in this exemplary series, and we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be giving a Good Friday message, and we're also going to be taking communion next week. So, you know, invite somebody, invite somebody out who doesn't really come to church for Good Friday. You can get the word, get some coffee, and uh, get some communion. Speaking of coffee, amazing, amazing. Round of applause. Round of applause for the coffee. It's good stuff. People are stepping up. It's amazing. All right. But as we open up uh, part one of Exemplary Faith uh, this week, our foundation for this week and part two of Exemplary Faith is going to be the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be in chapter 11. So if you guys want to turn there in preparation, if you guys have a digital Bible, I'll be reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the HCSB. So if you want to follow along, otherwise, Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. Uh, it's many people are listed in this chapter, and their faith is what's highlighted in this chapter. So in our desire to be examples in our faith, it's probably best we look at this portion of scripture. And as we seek to emulate and mimic what we read. And so the three points that we'll be covering tonight in part one of Exemplary Faith, our point one is going to be faith in salvation. Faith in salvation. Part two is faith in obedience. And point three is faith in a miracle. But before we do that, as always, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing everybody out. Everybody who's here, thank you for bringing them out. And everybody who's on their way, God, I just pray that you would get them here safely so that they can hear your word. And as we sit here and stand here, God, I pray that your word would speak to us. I pray that your spirit would fill this place, your spirit would fill me and everybody here so that we can hear and understand your word and to know what it is to have faith that is an example to the believers despite our youth. So I pray that you would take all of this, take my words, glorify yourself, and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So 
first point, faith and salvation. So let's go ahead and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, as I'm sure most of you have. And we're going to go ahead and read uh, verse 1. We're going to read from verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to verse 7. And verse 7 is where we're going to focus and begin uh, tonight's message. So Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. But faith was a, by, by faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so he did not experience death. And he was not, and he was not to be found because God took him away. For prior to his removal, he was approved since he had pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So many of us may be familiar with Noah, uh, but for those of us who may not be, and so that we can have a clearer understanding of what's being said here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6, and as we turn there, I want to provide some context for what's going on in these first chapters in Genesis. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates the universe and everything in it, including uh, the first two humans, Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden, and he told them that they can eat anything in the garden except for the fruit from one particular tree. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent, Satan, to eat the fruit that God said not to eat. And then sin entered the world. Adam and Eve are then kicked out of the garden and removed from God's presence. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous of Abel. Cain murders Abel, the first murder in human history. Adam and Eve go on to have many more children, one of whom is named Seth. In Genesis chapter 5, Seth has kids who have kids of their own, who have more kids, who have more kids, who have more kids, until you finally get to Noah. Noah. And by this time, the earth was most certainly heavily populated. So then we come to Genesis 6. So we're going to read, we're going to pick up in verse 5, and we'll kind of jump around Genesis 6 and 7, just so that we can get the details that we need for the purposes of our discussion tonight. So Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every scheme of his mind thought of, every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. Let's jump to verse 17 and 18. Understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. Now let's go down to chapter 7, verse 17. So God sends the flood. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The waters increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. I think I just read that twice. The waters surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind, everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the surface of the ground, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and, there, and, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. It's pretty intense. So there's a saying that the New Testament is concealed in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. Basically what that means is that everything is about Jesus. And in the Old Testament, you'll find so many stories and images and characters that are a type of Jesus. They, they represent Jesus. And the story of Noah and the flood is one of those representations. In Genesis, the sin of man filled the earth, and God revealed that his judgment was coming in the form of the flood to wipe out the entire earth. And this corresponds to the ultimate reality that we all are sinful people. And God has revealed that his judgment will come at the end of days in the form of eternal separation from him in hell. Not with water, but with fire. In Genesis, God tells Noah to build the ark out of wood. And he tells him that everyone who enters the ark will be saved from the flood, and they will live. And this corresponds to God sending Jesus to die for our sins on a cross made out of wood, and all who believe in him will be saved from hell and will live forever with him in heaven. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah was warned about something that was coming and was motivated by godly fear to build the ark, to obey unto salvation. So one of the ways that our faith is an example to the believers is that we believe God's plan for salvation. Noah was in the desert, right? Rain coming down, uh, it's not an everyday thing. So when Noah was building an ark for the purposes of a flood, that's even more ridiculous. 
Can you imagine the ridicule that he probably heard as people were watching him building this large boat for an apparent flood that was going to come from God? What foolishness it must have looked like. But the gospel isn't much different. The gospel isn't much different. If you guys want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, First Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So it must have looked extremely foolish to those around Noah as he was constructing this large ark for this apparent coming flood in the middle of the desert. And as I said, the gospel is no different in its apparent foolishness. If we reread 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the second part of verse 21, it says that God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Now, just to remind ourselves, what exactly is this foolish message that Paul is talking about? Well, it's the message of the cross. It's the salvation in Jesus. The message that we are all sinners who miss the mark of God's perfection, and God is holy and just. And all sin must be punished with the full force of God's wrath because his eyes are too pure to approve of evil, it says in Habakkuk. Anything less than the full, wrath of, uh, the full wrath of God coming down to punish us for our sins would mean that God is not just, but he is. So this brings a problem for us. This brings a problem for us because we've all sinned. So we're all destined to be punished for that sin in hell forever. But, but God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to take the punishment for us. Jesus Christ was crucified for us. He took God's wrath for our sins. He died, and then he rose again to show that he defeated death, that his sacrifice was enough, and it satisfied God's wrath for our sins. So now, for all of us who believe in this message and turn away from your sins, you can be forgiven and born again, as spiritually alive. You can be spiritually alive. And all who believe and turn from their sins and are born again will receive the Holy Spirit into your lives as a down payment for that inheritance that you're going to get when you get to heaven. All because of God's grace through faith. It's not because of us. So we share this message, and those of us who are familiar with this message makes perfect sense, right? Makes perfect sense. But let's take a step back and let's look at it from an unsaved person's perspective. 
God is mad at me because I broke his supposed law. And he's going to punish me because of that. But if I believe in Jesus and the crucifixion, everything will be forgiven. If I believe that this guy who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, that he took my punishment for my sins, then I can be saved from God's wrath because of this guy who was beat up and nailed to a cross by his own people? I mean, in human terms, yeah, this is kind of a foolish message. It's a strange message. But look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. And similarly, the ark was foolish, you know, to those in Noah's day. But for Noah, the ark was God's power and God's wisdom. So the exemplary faith of Noah that is being bragged about here in Hebrews 11 is one that heard God's warning and acted on it for salvation. So you too, if you were to have exemplary faith, you need to hear God's warning and act on it for salvation. And I want to extend this exhortation to have exemplary faith past the initial call of God for salvation. And I want to declare that we need to have a constant, daily, habitual faith in God as saved believers especially in the face of conviction or guilt. To explain what I mean, uh, let's, let's all turn to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. As you guys, you know, make your way there, I just want to let you know that on the topic of conviction and guilt, I am no stranger to strong conviction and strong guilt strong guilt. And when I say guilt, I mean like, like serious guilt. Like, like you're, you're feeling condemned as a believer. I'm no stranger to that. And if by, the end of the t- if by the end of tonight, if the only thing that you leave here with is this point right here, then everything, all the prep, the worship band, all the servants serving, it all will have been worth it if you just, if you leave tonight with just this point. All of this would have been worth it. So in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul talks about the struggle that he has with indwelling sin. And, you know, indwelling sin seems to remain within us. There seems to be a, a piece of sin that remains within us even after we come to Christ and are saved and we're born again. And this indwelling sin causes us to do things that we don't want to do. It causes us to sin against God even though we know the right thing to do. And so I want to read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, but I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. So if you have a digital Bible, you want to go to the New Living Translation. That's the translation I'm going to read it out of. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. Listen to Paul's heart. Listen to his heart. He's lamenting. He's crying out. He's frustrated. And this is what he says. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. 
But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle in life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And we'll pause there. Has anybody ever been there? That feeling that Paul has. You don't have to raise your hand. But has anybody ever been there? Yes, cute eyes front. <laughs> has anybody ever that, that level of frustration, that level of disgust with yourself? I have, for sure. You know, I've been at the point where I feel so consumed with my sin that it feels like there's a film of sin covering me. Like, have you guys ever jumped into, like, a, a, like a lake or a body of water, and once you get out, like, at the beach, and you just feel like there's, like, this film of something on you? I've been at the point where it's just, like, I feel like there's sin, just a layer of it on me, and I'm, I'm like, like, trying to, like, take it off of me. I'm, like, pulling out my shirt, pulling out my clothes, just trying to get it off of me. I've been dragged down by guilt and condemnation to the point where I'm just laying down, face down on the floor, puddle of tears collecting under my face because I'm just so broken and tired of feeling the guilt in the pit of my stomach feeling like the only way to make it go away is possibly to hurt myself because maybe the physical pain would take the place of the spiritual pain that I'm feeling, you know? And then maybe, maybe you know, at least if, if there's physical pain, you know where the source of the pain is and you could treat it. But with spiritual pain, you don't know where it is. You don't know where it's coming from. You just know it's there and it's not going away. I've been there. But let's continue to verse 25 in Romans chapter 7. He says, Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. He says, Thank God the answer really is in Jesus. So now we're going to continue into chapter 8. This is the end of chapter 7. We're going to continue in chapter 8. But now I'm going to go back to the Holman, to my, to my regular translation, because the wording here is, is, is very important. It really matters. So Paul is lamenting in chapter 7 that he has this indwelling sin that's causing him to do things that he doesn't really want to do, and he hates it. But he rejoices that Jesus Christ is the answer, and we're going to see why. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus, because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do 
since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Thank God the answer is in Jesus. And because of Jesus, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Sin may be dwelling in you, but you are dwelling in Christ. And if you are in Christ Jesus, then there is nothing to condemn you. There is nothing that can condemn you. You have been set free if you are in Christ Jesus. If you're still under the law of sin and death, if you are apart from Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're not born again, then yeah, condemnation still exists for you. The law informs you that you have broken it. That's what the law does. It lets you know that you broke the law and then it just leaves you there. When you run a red light, if you're right here, if you run a red light, California law informs you that you broke the law. But California law does not pay your ticket for you. You still need to pay for that. When you run a spiritual red light, the law of God informs you that you broke the law and it also doesn't pay your ticket for you. You still have to pay the price for that. But if you are in Christ, he picks up the tab. He pays the fine. He already paid the fine. It says in verse 3 of Romans 8, it says that he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. He sent Jesus as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us because we are in Christ. That's the only reason. But it goes further than that. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, I want to make this clear, only if you are in Christ. If you are born again, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've come to the cross for forgiveness, that's what it means to be in Christ. You are, the Spirit of God is living inside of you. If you are in Christ, you are no longer subject to the law. So the next time that you run a spiritual red light, you will not get a ticket for that. You will not have to pay a fine for that. Christ has already paid off any ticket that you can possibly get when he died on the cross. And how can we be sure of this? How can I be so sure of the things that I'm telling you right now? Because of verse 2 in Romans 8. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are free from that law. You are free from that law. That law does not apply to you anymore. That law cannot touch you. That law cannot claim you, and that law cannot condemn you. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are free from that law. That law no longer applies to you. So be free. Be free. I mean, your Father in heaven, he may have to call you into his office, 
and give you a spanking or two or three or four or five, however many it takes to get that disgusting sin out of your life, but you are never, ever going to have to pay the price for your own sins because if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. That means there's nothing more to add to it. Have faith in this. Have exemplary faith in this. Getting stuck in guilt and condemnation is not faith. When we hear God's call for salvation, he tells us to repent and believe. And now that we have responded to God's call, if you, if you have responded to God's call for salvation, continue to repent and believe and repent and believe and repent and believe over and over and over again until he calls you home. This is what God says. This is what God says. He was, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. There's a song. Uh, it's called The Battle. It's by uh, some hip-hop artists, Timothy Brindle and Shylan. I recommend you guys go check it out. It's pretty dope. So you guys know how there's like, you know, there's hip-hop battles. You know, one MC is going up against another one, and you know, they're just Sorry, I get in my hip-hop mode. They start spitting bars, and they're just like, you know, just dissing each other and stuff like that. So this song, Shy Lin, he's, he's representing sin. And Timothy Brindle, he's representing a Christian. And they're going back and forth, you know, 16 bars, 16 bars, 8 bars, 8 bars, you know, going back and forth. And there's this one part that was just like, like the dopest. Like, mic drop, done. Like, you're done. So sin comes at the Christian with this verse. He says, appreciate the compliment, thank you kindly. You claim to hate me rightly, yet you date me nightly. Rookie, you're my slave. If I stink, I guess I smell just like your corpse after I put you in your grave. Why you want to grab mics when you lack might? Oh, that's right. By the way, where were you last night? So that's sin going at the Christian. Yeah, where were you last night? Because sin knows. Sin knows. Sin knows what's going on. Sin knows that it's, it's, it's dwelling inside of us. But then this is how the Christian responds. Sin, stop it with the lies. Where was I last night? I was in the spirit plotting your demise. With the tougher nature, I'm a suffocator. Plus, I hate you. You're nothing since the Father crushed the Savior. Put me in my tombstone, but that's a favor to me because I'll be in heaven, my true home. You plan to tempt me? But your scam is empty, because even if I do fall, you can't condemn me. Boom. Even if I do fall, you can't condemn me. That's it. Even if I do fall, you can't condemn me. This is a glorious truth for the true believer in Jesus Christ. And if this, like I said, if this is the only thing that you remember from tonight, that's enough. That's enough. So that's faith in salvation, as we looked at Noah. Now let's move on to faith in obedience as we continue to look at exemplary faith. So let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be in verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So now that we read that, let's go back to Genesis. And we're going to be in Genesis 12. And as you turn there, like I did last time, I want to provide some more context. So in Genesis, we, we briefly went over Genesis 1 through 7, and in our first point, which led up to Noah and the flood. And so in Genesis chapter 8, the flood waters recede, and God promises to never, never destroy life on earth again, all of life. And then in Genesis chapter 9, God places a rainbow in the sky as a sign of his covenant with Noah, and also as a reminder of his promise to never flood the earth again. In Genesis, uh, in Genesis 10, you know, it tells us the descendants of Noah and his three sons. It just goes through a genealogy. And then in Genesis 11, that's where we learn about the Tower of Babel. And at that time, everyone was speaking the same language. By that time, the, the earth had been repopulated. Everyone speaking the same language. And they decided to build this tower up to heaven. And God looked down on them and said, they're going to do it because they can. They're going to. So rather than let them do it, because then they would end up worshiping themselves and their own abilities, like, look at what we did. God came down and confused their languages. So then they couldn't understand each other anymore. So then the people dispersed because, I mean, it was just confusion. It's just like, I don't, I don't know what you're saying, you know. So they all dispersed. And so that leads us to Genesis chapter 12, where we find Abram, which was Abraham's name before God changed it to Abraham. So let's read Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God said, Get up and get out of there. Leave your family. And what does the book of Hebrews say about Abraham? It says that when he was called, he obeyed and went out, not knowing where he was going. He didn't know where he was going, but he, he went out and he stayed because he was waiting for God's promise. Now, the book of Hebrews says that Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose architect and builder was God. But the main point is that he went out when he was called. God called him, and he went out. He obeyed. Genesis 12.4 says that, So Abram went, as the Lord told him. So we need to have the exemplary faith in obedience when God calls us to do something or to go somewhere. If you want to have exemplary faith when God calls you to do something or go somewhere, we need to have the faith to go do it. And I can't tell you what God is calling you to do. Because I just, I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. You need to spend time in his word. You need to spend time in prayer to figure out what it is that God wants you to do. Okay? But, a little story. Back when, uh, back when Vernie and I were dating, um, she was applying to grad school. And so, the options boil down to either somewhere here in L.A. or UC Davis up north, pretty far away. You know, she was praying so much. She was seeking the Lord, trying to be obedient to the Lord. And God eventually led her to go up to UC Davis. 
And although she was obeying God with that decision, it was not a great time for her. Uh, it was actually one of the worst experiences of her life. Uh, she was away from her family. She was away from everything that she knew. I mean, she was away from me. That's, that's horrible. Uh, you know, and she often felt very alone. <laughs> she, she's not here, so she can't, like, correct me. Um, and she often felt very alone up there. Um, but the Lord, the Lord in his providence, he placed her in an apartment where her roommate was a Muslim girl. And so for over a year, this Muslim girl witnessed my wife reading her Bible every morning, praying. They would have conversations about the Bible and about Jesus. And when I would go up to visit, I would have conversations with this girl about the Bible and about Jesus. And it, it's, it's turned out that this girl has, you know, continued to be a friend of ours. She's still a friend of ours to this day. And, you know, and over the years, she's had health problems. And, you know, we've, we've um, ministered to her, you know, spoken to her about Jesus throughout all of this stuff. She even ended up in Texas for treatment for these health problems that she was having. And so she was surrounded by Christians over there in Texas. And, and God has just been reaching out to this girl at every possible turn, just reaching out to her. However, this girl has yet to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, and because the difficulty of this experience that she had going up there to Davis, sometimes Rennie will reflect on her time up there, and she'll feel like it was all for nothing. It's like, because it was, it was definitely one of the worst times of her life, personally. Personally, it was one of the worst times of her life. But then it also seems like there was no fruit from it spiritually in regards to her Muslim roommate, because she's still holding to her Muslim roots. Nothing has changed. You know, so Vreni sometimes, you know, she'll be like, you know, what was the point of all that? Like, what was the point of all that stress of leaving home, being away from everybody, all the loneliness? Like, why did, why did God take me there? Like, what was the point? But let's look at Hebrews 11.10 again. Hebrews 11.10. It says, For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was called to leave his family and to go to the land that his descendants were to inherit. And he listened. He went. But while he was there, when he went to the land, and while he was alive, he never got to see the promised land the way that his descendants were going to see it. It was always going to be a future thing, but Abraham was never going to see it. Abraham was never going to see the fruit of this decision to obey, but he still obeyed. This was the beginning of God's choosing of Abraham, and after this initial call, that's when the history of the people of Israel began, which eventually leads to Jesus, which eventually leads to us being saved by what Jesus did on the cross. But if, imagine if Abraham didn't do this. Imagine Abraham decided not to go when God called him. God still would have gotten things done. He still would have done it. It just would have been through someone else because nothing's going to stop God from accomplishing his plans. But Abraham did obey. Abraham did listen. He exercised the faith 
to obey, even though he was not going to see the end goal of his obedience. And in the same way, my wife, she may never see the goal of her obedience of going to Davis and sharing the gospel and her life with this roommate, but she exercised the exemplary faith to obey, and she left all that she knew, and that's what's important. She obeyed. And similarly, there may be something that God is calling you to do, or maybe you're already engaged in this thing that God is calling you to do, and you, you may not see the immediate completion of it or the immediate blessings or the immediate goal, but that's okay. That's okay. The important thing is that you have the faith, the exemplary faith, to obey when God calls you to do something. Abraham left his home to dwell in the land that would eventually be his through his children, but he went as a foreigner, and it was never his while he was there. But he looked forward to the promise anyway and was certain that God would deliver. God may be calling you to obey him in something to leave your home, and you may feel like you may feel out of place. You may feel like you're going to feel out of place if you, if you do this thing, like you're going to feel like a foreigner if you obey. But that's okay. Just obey. Just obey and look forward to God eventually accomplishing his will and rejoice that you were allowed to play a part in it, that you were chosen to play a part in it. Your obedience, your obedience, think about this, your obedience to God's call to go somewhere or to do something could mean that many people after you will be blessed and benefited. You may not see it, but it, your obedience could mean that. So be obedient and trust that the fruit will be there, even if you can't see it right now. You may not see the fruit. Abraham didn't. Abraham sure didn't see the fruit. He lived in the promised land, but he didn't live in it the way that God had promised to his descendants but he exercised the exemplary faith to obey. And so should you. And so now, that's faith to obey, faith in obedience. So now let's look at our final point, faith in a miracle. As, uh, let's go back to Hebrews 11, and we're going to read verses 11 through 12. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. So to get more context on this particular part of Hebrews, let's go back to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. And so far in our two previous points, uh, we've briefly covered what's been happening in Genesis up until uh, Abraham obeying God in Genesis chapter 12. And so from chapter 12 to, to chapter 18, uh, we read about some of Abraham's adventures. Uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. I encourage you to, to go and read it. Uh, because you'll find that Abraham, although he is considered the father of the faith and uh, a great biblical figure, he was, he was just a normal man 
with faults and failures just like us. And it just magnifies uh, the grace and goodness of God. So I encourage you to read that. But in Genesis 18, Abraham is visited by three heavenly visitors. And they tell him that Sarah will give birth to a child. But let's read Genesis 18, verses 9 through 15. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, Abraham answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I have become shriveled up and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. Very matter of fact. No, you did. I feel like that's how I talk to my son sometimes. He's, he's, he's like, he's so young, but he's, he's already learning how to lie. That sin is manifesting itself in that little boy. That sin is manifesting itself in him. Anyway, uh, Sarah was unable to have children. She was unable to have children, and unlike Unlike in today's world, uh, children were actually wanted, you know, during this time. You know, having children was a sign of God's blessing. And, uh, but Sarah was infertile, and she just, she just couldn't have children. So by this point, not only was she infertile, but she was well beyond the age of childbearing. So the hope of possibly having a baby was just long gone. And the Bible says that by the time she gave birth to her son, Isaac, Abraham was 100 years old, so Sarah couldn't have been too far behind in years. Well, she was pretty old. And speaking of Abraham being 100 years old, Abraham was 100 years old. Uh, dude was old. Uh, the book of Hebrews says that he was as good as dead. It's messed up. Not, not a lot of strong swimmers left in that pool, if you know what I mean. Anyway. All that to say is that the idea that of, of Sarah and Abraham having a baby uh, after probably about 80 years of infertility and the condition of their old shriveled bodies, uh, the possibility of them having a kid would seem impossible. But what does God say in verse 14 of Genesis 18? He says, is anything impossible for the Lord? Rhetorical question, no, no, nothing is impossible. I remember a couple of years into my walk, you know, because this, this is a story regarding a miracle, having a baby after 80 years of infertility, and you're old. Um, I remember a few years ago, a few, a few years into my walk, um, I developed some sort of itching problem on my skin. Weird. Omar looked up, like, he's like, what is he talking about, itching? What? There was, like, a, a weird itching. I don't know, my skin just got really itchy, and it was really bad. Like, if I would lean up, like, against the wall, like the parts of my body that touched the wall or my head, like it would start to get very itchy, like painfully, like burning itchy to the point where like I would scratch and scratch and scratch and I would have to break the skin so that the itch wouldn't be there anymore. Like there was no relief. It was just, it was bad. And I didn't know what it was or why it was happening, 
but it was there, and I thought maybe God was disciplining me for something, you know, because, you know, at the time, I was much younger, so I was, like, always late with my tithes, you know, I would, always, I would just have it in my pocket, <laughs> you know, I would just always forget, and I was like, gosh, is, is God, are you punishing me? Like, I'm sorry, like, I'll, I'll bring my tithes, like, on time and all that stuff, um, and I would always be looking for ways to get right with God, like, even though I was already saved, like, I was already right with him, but I was just like, oh, I'm doing something wrong, um, and this went on for years, you know, just praying and praying. I even went to Mexico, you know, to get it looked at, like crazy stuff. Went to TJ. Got a, they didn't help me. They didn't help me at all. It was all a waste of time and money. Anyway, for years this went on, praying and praying for God to take this itchiness away from me. But then a few years into my marriage, uh, one day I realized, like, oh, I haven't really had a problem with, with my itching in a few months. Like, huh, it's weird. And I, start, I started to think, like, is this a miracle? Like, did God perform a miracle? Like, all my years of praying, did God actually perform a miracle? But then one day, uh, the itching comes back. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? Like, I thought God did this miracle in my life, and now, now it's back. Like, I've been tithing on time. Like, I don't know. Long story short, I guess out of the blue, I just kind of developed this allergy to, like, laundry detergent that has a fragrance in it. I didn't know that was a thing, but that's what happened. And um, so when my son was born, my wife started switching to a laundry detergent, you know, a clean laundry detergent with no fragrances, none of that stuff, basically washing with water. And, um, and that's when I stopped getting itchy. And then one day she bought another detergent that had fragrance in it because it was on sale and that's when the itchiness came back. And so we switched back to a clean detergent. Itching's gone. And I was like, oh, okay, so it wasn't a miracle. It wasn't, but I still gave glory to God because he gave us the wisdom to figure out what the problem was. And so now I never have to worry about that again, just make sure I get clean, fragrance-free detergent. So in regards to our third point, faith for a miracle, for me personally, I've, I've yet to experience anything that many would consider to be an actual miracle. You know, I thought I had, but it wasn't. It's was just laundry detergent. Um, I've never seen a paralyzed person start walking. I've never seen a blind person regain their sight. I've never seen a seriously, a serious deadly illness be reversed without medical intervention. I've seen them be reversed the help of doctors, but I've never seen a deadly disease just reversed out of nowhere. But that doesn't mean that I don't believe in the miraculous. I truly believe that the God that we serve is a God of miracles, and he performs miracles when it serves to glorify himself and not us. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells his disciples that they need to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven, meaning they need to have faith like a child. And a child believes. A child trusts. A child is not cynical. And that's why we need to watch over our children, because there are evil people who will take advantage of that. But that's the kind of faith that we need to have. We need to have faith like children. So even though I may not have, I may not have witnessed a miracle firsthand, I believe that God can do anything, and I, I pray from that position of belief. There have been situations in my life where the only way that this is going to turn out well is through a miracle of God, and I've prayed from that, from that position of belief didn't happen. God had other plans, but that's exemplary faith in a miracle to believe that God can do it, because he can. 
the word of God is true. The word of God is true, and we read of many miracles that were performed by Jesus and his disciples. So if the word is true, which it is, and it tells us that miracles were being performed by the faith of believers, through the faith of believers, then I believe that miracles can come about through the faith of believers today. It can be done today. Miracles can happen. They, other people have witnessed them. Miracles can happen. But rather than spend too much time on, on the miracle aspect of Sarah's story, I want to look more closely at the faith aspect. And I'd also like to invite the band to, to come up as we finish off. So Sarah is in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, and it says that she had faith in God to give her a child, despite all of the circumstances working against her. You know, she's old. Abraham's old. She's been unable to become pregnant for her entire adult life. That's what Hebrews says, that she had great exemplary faith in God. But what do we read in Genesis 18? What do we read in Genesis 18? It says that she laughed. It says that she laughed and was basically dismissing this thing that the Lord was saying to Abraham, and God called her out on it. It seems incongruent, right? Hebrew says that she had great faith that God was able to do this thing, but in Genesis, we read that she laughed when she heard God say this thing. So, but the reason I want to dial in on this is that although Sarah may have begun from a place of disbelief, she obviously eventually ended up in a place of faith, right? Otherwise, why would she be named as someone with great faith? And possibly you too, as you, know, as you hear God's call for salvation, or you hear God's call to go somewhere or to do something for him, or you see the great challenge ahead of you that will only be overcome by a miracle of God, you too may start out from a place of lacking faith. It's possible, but you don't have to remain there. You don't have to stay in that place of lacking faith. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, it says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. It doesn't matter how much or how little faith you start out with, supplement it. Supplement it. Add to it the things that it says in Second Peter, which basically amounts to reading your word and fellowshipping with other believers. Supplement your faith with these things. The message will always be the same. The message will always be the same. You need to be born again. You need to read your word. And you need to be around other believers. That's it. And Peter says in verse 10 that if you do these things, if you do these things, you will never stumble. If you do these things, you will never stumble. So do these things. Supplement whatever faith you have with the word and fellowship. And God, through the Holy Spirit, will take that, build you up, and cause your faith to increase more and more as you walk with him. And then you will have that exemplary faith that we're all striving for. As always, our leaders are going to be up here, and they'll be walking around as well. Um, these are people that we have recognized as, as having exemplary faith. These people are recognized as leaders here at Awaken. And I know that I'm often propelled uh, to greater faith whenever I'm around these people. It's, um, it's humbling. So if you're a lady, you're a female, and you need prayer, or you need encouragement, 
We have Kelly right here. We also have Alicia. She's right there. Those are the, the two females that are available tonight. So if, if you need prayer or encouragement, go to them, ladies. And uh, also, ladies, if uh, you need more encouragement, uh, Tuesday nights, there's a women's Bible study that meets here at 730. Come out and meet up with some older women who are much wiser and uh, mature than you are and learn from them. And guys, we got Tony over here, and I'm here, and you, basically any of these guys up here. Uh, just oh, Ronald's here. <laughs> Ronald's here. Uh, but yeah, come up to us if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, whatever you need. Um, we're here for you. But let's, let's strive to have exemplary faith. Let's strive to have exemplary faith. And supplement that faith, however big or small it is, supplement it with the word and with fellowship. And let's continue worshiping Jesus as we enter into this time of, of praising him in songs. But before we do that, let's pray. God, thank you so much for, again, bringing all of us here. I pray that your word would go forth and convict the hearts of those that need to be convicted, that you would encourage the hearts of those that need to be encouraged. God, you know exactly what each one of us needs. You know what we need to hear. You know what uh, we need to have happen in us to bring about the change that you want to see in us, to, to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. And so God, I pray that as the word goes forth and as we continue to sing songs to you, that you would do that work. Do that work in, these, in the hearts that are here, God, and change us. Make us different. Make us different from who we walked in as. Change us, God. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.